Well, let's pray. Um, Father, we thank you so much. Thank you for your grace. Lord Jesus, I thank you that you came to save us. And Lord, you still continue to seek and save that which is lost. And um, Lord, I pray if there's anybody who's just contemplating whether they want to come tonight, that you would bring them, Lord, that you'd help them come down here to uh, really have a curiosity, a desire to know what you say. Lord, and that's what we want more than anything, not man's opinions, nothing like that, but to know what you say from your word that you've given to us. So we praise you, Lord. We love you. I pray that you'd help us with this topic. And um, we thank you in your name. Amen. All right, so the topic tonight is euthanasia. So euthanasia, assisted suicide, or physician-assisted suicide, And what does the Bible say about it? And the reason I had this question is because I saw a pamphlet floating around here. So I thought, well, that'd be something interesting to to go over. What does the Bible say about that? And that's something that's been legalized just this year. And, um, you know, something that's kind of, it's it's hard to answer. It's hard to deal with. There's a lot of different conflicting ideas and everything like that. So I think it's always important. I mean, We can have as many ideas as we want, but does it coincide with what God says? Because what he says is the final word. He tends to to write things in stone, right? It's one of the things he does. So what he says is law. What he says is true. Anything that contradicts that cannot be true at the same time. So I'd like to, first off, let's just define euthanasia. Euthanasia actually is a Greek word. And it means you, which means um, goodly or well, and then thontos, which means death. And so it means the good death, and that's what it was um, intended to be from its, from its get-go, was to kind of be like a mercy killing, to have mercy on somebody, to not let them suffer through pain, um, through disease, through sickness, through things like that. Webster's Dictionary defines it as the act or practice of permitting suicide, the death of the hopelessly sick or injured individuals, such as persons or domestic animals, in a relatively painless way from reasons of mercy. So it's intervening in life and death through probably medical means, could be through starvation. Um, Starvation and injection or poison has been the most common form of euthanasia. What euthanasia is not. I already had a question about this today, and uh, it seemed like the person was a little bit confused confused on what euthanasia was. They, they were wondering about their father and how they let him go off of chemotherapy and drugs to help him um, get better, but they stopped the treatment. Was that euthanasia? No, it was not, because the disease still killed that person. It wasn't human intervention that killed that person. It wasn't another person that killed that person. It was the disease. So it's not euthanasia. Euthanasia is very specific. It's self-assisted or um, physician-assisted suicide. It's when you take your own life or have somebody take your life for you. Um, It is not keeping someone comfortable with drugs so that they can die as pain-free as possible. That's actually biblical. Okay, where do we get that from? From Proverbs 31, verse 6 says, Give strong drink to him who is perishing. Give strong drink to him who is perishing. Why? Because strong drink will deaden your nerves. It might even help you go to sleep. It might take the edge off that pain that you're experiencing. So the Bible condones that. Give strong drink to him who is perishing. It's not unspiritual to get morphine or something like that if you're in severe pain or even if you're on your way out of your body, right? Euthanasia is also not taking someone off life support, okay? Somebody's on life support, their their heart, their lungs, maybe even their brain are being um, continued in operation by medical means, by a breathing apparatus or... Um, defibrillation or, or something like that. It's not It's not keeping or taking someone off that. That is not euthanasia. 
That is what that is is it's saying we've done all we can do. This person's not going to come out of this. So let's go ahead and let him go. Let's commend them to the Lord. Let's give them over to God. Right? That's what taking someone off life support is. That it's not euthanasia. Um, that kind of decision is always left to family members, maybe even to the person. You know, I, I don't want to be on life support for months and years and stuff like that if I ever have an accident or if I get a disease, um, get cancer or something like that. I don't want to be on life support forever, you know. So I would counsel my wife to, to take me off of it as soon as she realizes that there's, there's no hope, there's no further hope. And just to give me over to the Lord. Um, also, it's not, like I said, it's not discontinuing medical treatment. Okay? So that's what euthanasia is not. Go ahead. Hopefully not. <laughs> yeah. Yep. You, hospice is the primary purpose of hospice is to just take care of you, to make you comfortable. Now, unfortunately, um, I believe many times hospice nurses and stuff like that have given uh, large doses of morphine to people. And I, I believe that's been a practice for a long time. That's what they were trying to. I'll talk about my dad in a little bit, my experience with this. But um, I believe they were going to do that to my dad. And it's like. You're not going to kill him. The disease will kill him, but you will not. Right? Um, or starvation or something like that. A lot of times you go to hospice and uh, they won't, they'll try to keep you from having food, water, anything that would kind of prolong the process of, of death. Um, if the person wants food and water, then they should get it. If they don't want it, then don't give it to them. It should be up to that person. But that's not, that's not euthanasia. It is euthanasia if you starve the person to death. Same thing happened to my dad there, too. They stopped. They were mad at me because I gave him a popsicle. I asked him if he wanted a popsicle. He couldn't really talk very well, and he, he let me know he did. So I gave him a popsicle. The nurse was upset with me because they wanted him to go quickly. I'm like, what are you you're just going to sit in here getting paid anyways? What, what's your problem? And, uh, but I, I remember the thought going through my head, he's not going to starve to death. He's going to die of cancer. Right? And so there's, there's a difference there. In history, the battle against or for euthanasia has been a long battle. So back in 5 BC is the earliest I kind of found. There's probably, there's probably more, but you guys have probably heard of um, the Hippocratic Oath. The Hippocratic Oath. Anybody here ever taken the Hippocratic Oath? We don't have any doctors here, physicians. So um, I'm sure somebody in this building has probably taken it if they're a physician. Um, hypocrites it has nothing to do with being a hypocrite it was just his name he was back in the 5th century and he wrote down kind of a moral oath that physicians were to take before becoming physicians and I believe it was in light of abortion go figure and euthanasia isn't that strange what are we having today you know things really don't change are we really progressing or are we regressing you know about 2,000 years or more. So it says, uh, it says this, I will use treatment to help the sick according to my ability and judgment, but never with a view to injure, injury and wrongdoing. Neither will I administer a poison to anybody when asked to, nor will I suggest such a course. There you have a euthanasia right there. I will not poison anybody if they ask me to poison them. I will not end their life, even if they're begging me to end their life. Um, similarly, I will not give a woman a pessary to cause an abortion. A pessary was a, from what I understand, was a type of poison they would insert up into the female and it would cause an abortion. But then it says, but I will keep pure and holy both in my life and in my art. So that was Hippocratic Oath. He wasn't a Christian. It was 5 BC before Christ even came. Uh, he actually made that oath before Apollos and all these healing gods and stuff like that. Um, but Christians actually took that oath and said, this needs to be applied to medicine. So the reason we still say it today is because of the church, because of the Christian church has handed that oath down through the centuries. Um, Nazi Germany, probably the most famous of all euthanization or anything like that, 
they actually started off killing children. So if a child was born with a birth defect, retardation, anything like that, they started killing these children. And what they would do, they would send a letter and a gift to the parents or to the family members, and they would say some type of lie why the child is dead. But they would euthanize the children because they didn't want them to grow up with... Um, they didn't, basically, they didn't want that, that gene pool to carry on, right? It was eugenics. And eugenics is that, that um, kind of trying to keep the, a gene pool pure, trying to get rid of impurities in a gene pool, weaknesses, so that you can further on evolution. Right? That's what eugenics is, and that's what Nazi Germany was doing through the Holocaust and everything else. And then they took that practice, started doing it to Jews and to, to anybody else who was, um, if they didn't have blue eyes. You know what I mean? You guys probably all, probably, you guys probably know a lot more about that than I do. Um, what are some of the arguments for euthanization? So this is from a, uh, a website. I refuse to say the name of it because I will not be guilty of telling anybody where to go to be euthanized. It says it's about having ability to determine when and where and how you're going to go. It's about having a choice and having control. So they want to have control over how they die, everything like that. Um, well, so there's the other side, or to be merciful, to be merciful, to not to stop somebody's suffering. Some say, well, we euthanize animals. My response to that would be, well, we also eat animals. I'm not going to eat you, so therefore I probably shouldn't euthanize you either. There's a biblical distinction between humans and animals. Okay. Another argument for is I don't want to be a burden on my family. Which these are all things that we can probably somewhat relate with, right? Except there's one thing. God says, my ways are not your ways. Nor your ways my ways, says the Lord. Right? Um, another argument for it is the state doesn't want the financial burden of taking care of people. It's a huge, huge um, financial burden upon the state. Take people during death and stuff like that. Take care of people on their, on their way into dying. But what does the Bible say? That's what we should always think every time any, anything you see on the news, anything happens, what does God's word say? All right? What does God's word say? He, that is our foundation of truth. That is what he has given us to discern right and wrong, good and evil. Right? Does the Bible mention euthanasia by name? No. Does it mention suicide by name? No, but there are accounts of suicide, and there's even an account of euthanization. Okay? Actually, I believe there's two. Where somebody has somebody else kill them because they don't want to suffer anymore. But there is a, there's a problem with euthanization, and that is the origin of man is God. The origin of man is God, right? Did you create yourself? Did humanity just burst out of somewhere and just say, here I am. Nobody made me. No. With every cause, there has to be a greater effect. Or with every effect, there has to be a greater cause. Sorry, I butchered that. That's actually a scientific law, the law of causality. Okay, the law of causality states no effect can be greater than its cause. The universe is co comprised of an array of intelligible and complex effects consisting of living systems and conscience, conscious personalities. This is proof of an intelligent, complex, living, conscious person at its cause. Okay, so if there's, a, if there's a, an effect, there has to be a greater cause. Right? Just a stupid illustration. If uh, my large friend Joe back there, if he goes and he picks something up, his muscle mass, his muscle strength must be greater than the weight that he's picking up, right? Or else he's not going to move it. Okay? He goes out there, there's a Volkswagen bug sitting out there, he doesn't like the way it's parked, goes over there and picks it up, then his muscle mass and strength must be greater than the weight of that car. Same thing with us. 
Are you intelligent? You guys are all asking me that right now. Are you intelligent? No. Are you intelligent? Yes. Do you love? Yes. Are you a moral person? Yes. Are you a physical person? Yes. So therefore, your creator must be greater than you. Okay? That is sound science. And yes, science is on the side of God's word. So there's a sovereign God who is over us, who gives us conscience or or a moral compass, I would say. He gives us a moral compass. We all know it's wrong to lie, right? We all know certain things are wrong. Murder is wrong. What's the one thing, if you were to go up to somebody and start telling them about Jesus or ask them, why are you going to go to heaven, what would they say? Well, I'm a good person. And you start naming off some sins or something like that, and they would say, well, I've never murdered somebody. You know, they all know murder is wrong. In Genesis 1, verses 26 through 28, it says this. It says, Then God said, Let us make man in our image, according to our likeness. Let him have dominion over the fish of the sea, over the birds of the air, and over the cattle, over every, uh, I'm sorry, over all the earth, and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So he says, Let us make man in our image, speaking of Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Okay, our. It's a unified plural. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. Then God blessed them, and God said to them, Be fruitful and multiply, fill the earth and subdue it, and have dominion over the fish of the sea, over the birds of the air, over every living thing that moves on the earth. So, in what image did God make us? In his image. Why would he do that? Why would he do that? Why would he make us loving, intelligent, resourceful, creative? All these things. Why would he make us like that? To be his image bearer, to be his representative on the earth, to all of creation, even to each other. We are to be representatives of God to one another and to all his creation. All right? Now there's a problem, and that problem is sin. That problem is that we have fallen short of God's glory. We have fallen short of being his representatives on the earth. Now we never stop being representatives. We are just very, 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 very bad ones. Because if I lie, what does it say about God if I'm his representative? Well, he's a liar, right? If I'm immoral or anything, what does that say about God if I'm his representative? That means my character, my personality is a contradiction to who God is. Therefore, that must be fixed. Now, as you read through the Bible, you see that this whole sin thing gets way out of control, right? So God has to deal with it. In Genesis chapter 6, it says this, the earth was also corrupt before God and the earth was filled with violence. So God looked upon the earth and indeed it was corrupt for all flesh had corrupted their way on the earth. And God said to Noah, The end of all flesh has come before me, for the earth is filled with violence through them. And behold, I will destroy them with the earth. So God's enacting a judgment. What is is wrong with everybody on the earth? They're corrupt. And there's one thing in particular. They're violent. They're killing each other, murdering each other, destroying life that God has given as a gift. And so God dealt with them. He destroyed them. Now, people would say, well, that just makes God a hypocrite. He wants to save life, but yet he destroys it. No. He's God. He's creator. He's sovereign. Right? And he's just. He's righteous. And so what does a righteous, good God do when sin arises? He deals with it. Right? And so what did he do? He sent the flood. He destroyed all the life that was on the earth except for Noah and his family and the animals. But then it says, 
in chapter 9, and here is our mandate to govern ourselves and to keep people from murder. Okay? And it says, Surely for your lifeblood I will demand a reckoning. From the hand of every beast I will require it, and from the hand of man, from the hand of every man's brother I will require the, man, the life of man. Whoever sheds man's blood by man, his blood shall be shed, for the, in the image of God he made man. So if you kill somebody, right, as a human society, we are to deal with that through killing that person, through execution. But it's not murder. Killing and murder are two different things. So listen very carefully to this. It says, you're not supposed to kill because in the image of God he made man. So by murdering a human being, it is a direct assault on the person of God. It is a direct assault on the person of God by murdering somebody, by ending their life without the reason for just cause. Okay? For the reason of protecting other humans. For the reason of justice. If those reasons are not in place, then you cannot murder somebody. You cannot end their life. You cannot stop their life. And so that would go directly into euthanization. All right? What's the sixth commandment? Anybody know? Exodus 20. Thou shalt not murder. All right? In the old King James, it says kill, but it means murder. Two different types of things. If, uh, for instance, somebody breaks into my house, I have my gun, and I shoot that person, is it murder or is it a kill? It's killing. I have the right to protect myself and my family. That person's going to come in. I don't know what he's going to do. He may want to harm my family. He wanna, may want to hurt my little girls and my wife. Therefore, it is morally responsible for me to destroy that person. Right? That is a moral responsibility that God gives us. Um, or let's say in just war. If North Korea is really as big of a threat as they say they are, right? And we feel like we're threatened, our people are threatened, then our government has the responsibility to protect by any means necessary. So I would say this about euthanization. If someone intervenes and causes the death of another person without the reason of justice, preservation of other human life, then that is murder. Okay, that is murder. If somebody gives you an injection to kill you, if say, say if you have cancer and you're suffering, and that person gives you an injection to kill you, that is murder. Because it's no longer the cancer that's killing you, it is now a person who is killing you. They are ending your life. And that is murder. And so, to reject this is not just to reject man's idea, it's to reject God. It's to reject God's word, to reject his mandate. Now, is there any examples of the Bible in this? Yes. Let's go to um, 2 Samuel chapter 1. So just a little history. King Saul, some of you guys may remember him. He's the one who's hunting David down to kill him like a dog. All right? He wants to destroy David because David's a threat to his throne. And so... Saul wants to kill him. Also, he's jealous of David because everybody, all the girls are singing, Saul has killed his thousands, but David's killed his tens of thousands. He's such a mighty man, such a mighty warrior. He's greater than King Saul. So King Saul wants to kill him. Now, on the battlefield, he's fighting against the Amalekites, and they come by, or they're in war, and his Israel starts to lose. Israel starts to lose. Saul knows that there's no way that he's going to win. He's going to be taken, probably beaten, made a spectacle of, and killed eventually. So he takes his sword or his spear, and he leans on it, tries to kill himself. 
First, he tries to get his armor bearer to kill him. His armor bearer is like, no way, I am not going to murder you. I am not going to kill you. How dare I do such a thing? So Saul tries to do it himself. His armor bearer um, does the same thing. So they're both dead, or at least so we think. And it says this in chapter 1 of First Samuel, or 2 Samuel. It says, Now it came to pass after the death of Saul, when David had returned from the slaughter of the Amalekites, and David had stayed two days in Ziklag, on the third day, behold, it happened that a man came from Saul's camp with his clothes torn and dust on his head. So it was, when he came to David, that he fell to the ground and prostrated himself. And David said to him, Where have you come from? So he said to him, I have escaped from the camp of Israel. Then David said to him, How did the matter go? Please tell me. And he answered, The people have fled from the battle. Many of the people are fallen dead. And Saul and Jonathan his son are also dead. So David said to the young man who told him, How do you know that Saul and Jonathan his son are dead? Then the young man who told him said, As it happened by chance, or as I happened by chance to be on Mount Gilboa, there was Saul leaning on a spear, and indeed the chariots and horsemen followed hard after him. Now when he looked behind him, he saw me and called to me, and I answered, Here I am. And he said to me, Who are you? So I answered, I am an Amalekite. So who are they fighting? Who is David fighting? The Amalekites, okay? So he said... To me again, please stand over me and kill me, for anguish has come upon me, but my life still remains in me. So I stood over him and killed him, because I was sure that he could not live after he had fallen. And I took the crown that was on his head and the bracelet that was on his arm, and I brought them here to my Lord. So he says, I knew he couldn't live, so I killed him. I finished him off. So he just wouldn't, you know, die in pain, and that he was suffering. That's exactly what euthanasia is. So it says, Therefore David took hold of his own clothes and tore them, and so did all the men who were with him. And they mourned and wept and fasted until evening for Saul and for Jonathan his son, for the people of the Lord and for the house of Israel, because they had fallen by the sword. Then David said to the young man who told him, Where are you from? And he answered, I am the son, son of an alien, an Amalekite. So David said to him, How was it that you were not afraid to put forth your hand and to destroy the Lord's anointed? Then David called one of the young men and said, Go near and execute him. And he struck him so that he died. So David said to him, Your blood is on your own head, for, for your own mouth has testified against you, saying, I have killed the Lord's anointed. He's guilty of murder. So David has him executed. Right? That is a sin that's punishable by death. And I tell you what, we got to pray for our nation. we got to pray for other nations. Think of Holland. Kids can go and be euthanized, from what I hear and understand, without parental consent. Where are we headed? Our moral depravity is on a downward spiral at a rate that no preacher that I've ever listened to could have guessed. I listen to a lot of old preachers. Now, how does euthanasia affect the gospel? Number one, human life is valuable in the eyes of God. God made you to love you, to shower you with his goodness and his grace. Right? He made you for that person, for that purpose, and also to bring glory to him. What is the chief end of man? To glorify God and to enjoy him forever. That is the chief end of man. And Jesus died for you. Jesus was murdered for you. He was a sacrifice for you. So he paid for you. You are his. You belong to him. And all the earth belongs to him. That's why we can't take our lives into our own hands. Because we belong to someone who is far greater than us. And if you're a Christian, your life is bound up in his. If you're a Christian, your life is bound up in his because he bought you with the price of his blood. 
He bought you when he was hanging on that cross. And he justified you when he raised from the dead and is now at the right hand of God. Now, so listen to this. This is a quote from Alexander McLaren. I think he was a preacher back in the 1800s. And it says this. Listen very closely. We may all make our deaths a sacrifice, an offering to God. For we may yield up our will to God's will, and so turn that last struggle into an act of worship and self-surrender. We are all going to die one of these days, unless the Lord comes back. Hopefully he comes back right now, and then we'll just avoid the whole thing, right? We're, if, if that doesn't happen, though, we are all going to die. We are all one day going to be on our deathbeds. And most of us are thinking, I'll probably go in my sleep. I won't even notice. I hope so. You know, that's what I hope for myself. And I hope that for all of us. Less than I hope that the Lord would come back. But still, if we have to die, I hope that it's, you know, just in our deathbeds. You know, we'll just wake up and not, or go to sleep and not wake up. And be a good way to go. But listen to that again. For we may yield up our own will to God's will, and so turn that last struggle into an act of worship and self-surrender. When we recognize his hand, when we submit our wills to his purposes, when we live unto the Lord, if we live and if we live and um, die unto him, we will die. The death we will lose, oh sorry, then death will lose all its terror and most of its pain. And it will become for us what it was to Paul, a true offering up of self in thankful worship to God. So even death, even us when we are on our deathbeds, can be us just submitting ourselves to God, glorying in him. I mean, I, when, I, when I go, I hope I go well. No matter how painful it is, I hope I say, Lord, I am yours. I hope my children see it. I hope my family sees it. I hope my friends see it. And they can say, there's a man who loves the Lord. There's a man who believes that his God and his word is true. I'm not terrified to die. For the believer, death is kind of like a, um, what do you call it when you get a yeah, promotion? Yeah, what do you call it when you get a promotion? It's a promotion. It's a promotion for the believer. We wake up in his likeness. What? We get to wake up in the likeness of Jesus Christ, who is God himself, who is full of glory? How awesome is that for the believer? For the unbeliever, it's terror. Imagine being euthanized as an unbeliever, thinking that your suffering is going to end, but the moment that needle enters you and the Poison is pumped in and you close your eyes for that last time, you will awaken to destruction. You will awaken to greater pain than you've ever known in this world. That is a terrifying thought. And again, I always want to warn and warn you guys and anybody who's listening. The hell is real. Heaven is real. God is real. Jesus Christ is real, and he really did die for you. But be warned, if you reject him, if you reject the saving knowledge, the saving faith of Jesus Christ, there is nothing for you but torment. Many people say, what has God ever done for me? He sent Jesus to die for you, to pay for your sins so that you could live on in eternity forever with him in perfect joy. Greater excitement than we've ever had here. Greater happiness, greater everything. Yet, not the sorrow, not the pain, will be what we were really created to be. Image bearers of the Most High God. I told you guys I was going to tell you my dad's story. Because I believe many people get shown mercy in those last days of life. 
Okay? How many deathbed conversions have we heard of? And many of them are true. Because God reaches down and he touches that person. He gives them one more chance to receive him. And by committing euthanasia, you're taking that chance away from somebody or you're giving that opportunity for God to work in your heart one last time, if you're an unbeliever, you're giving up that opportunity if you choose to kill yourself instead. So my dad, he got diagnosed with cancer. It was like September of 2012. And uh, it progressed. He ended up, it was a, like a colon or a rectal cancer. He ended up perforating one of his bowels. I don't know how many bowels you have. I think you have two, a lower and an upper, right? And um, so they prepped, and you know what happens if that happens? You end up with feces all through your body, mass infection, everything like that. So not only was he dealing with the cancer that was killing him, he was now had to deal with that. He got weaker and weaker and weaker. In December, he was gone. But two weeks before he died, my brother and I were able to sit in there and tell him about Jesus one more time before he really lost his faculties, before he lost his speech and everything like that. And he received the Lord Jesus Christ. I remember me and my brother, he's trying to get us to become part of the Masonic Lodge because my dad was a Mason. And uh, we're like, Dad, you're putting your, your eggs in the wrong basket. you gotta, you got to reach out for Jesus. you got to ask him to save you. you got to believe in him and what he's done for you. Put, place your faith in him. And that night he ends up texting me. I renounced the Masons. I'm going to trust and trust my life fully to Jesus Christ. And I tell you what, those last days were his most joyous days he's ever had because he's a miserable man until that time. And then in his darkest hour, he had more joy than he'd ever had in his life. He was telling all the nurses, trust in Jesus, trust in Jesus. And he couldn't really talk that well, so it was kind of like, trust in Jesus, you know. But he said it over and over to everybody. That was his message. Those were the greatest words he ever uttered. And then he died. And I was able to perform, or not perform, to speak at his funeral and to tell everybody of the great hope that was given him. Now, my dad, when he was in the hospital before he died, and before he came to Christ, he was a police officer. And he kept telling us, get my gun, give it to me, I'm going to blow my brains out. Now imagine if we would have gone and gotten Dr. Kevorkian or, you know, some other euthanasia person. If we would have brought him back or brought him his gun and he would have died, he would have never known Christ. And he would be in hell right now. But he's not. God worked in his life in those final days. In those final days, he worked in his life. Now I want to give you a few more reasons not to do it. From the, from the reasons I gave for, the, people that the, the, the reasons people give for euthanasia. And I think one of them is a big one. It's mercy. It's not mercy. It's condemning somebody. It's condemning somebody. We should have no part in that or condemning ourselves. Right? Now, if you do commit euthanasia and you're a Christian, will you go to hell? No. God's grace is sufficient for you. But I don't know if you'll hear, well done, my good and faithful servant. All right? You may be saved as one through the fire. You go up there smelling like smoke. Another one was, we don't want our family members to be burdened and suffer with us. And I believe that's noble. But remember what God says, my ways are not your ways. Wonder if your suffering brings your family to the knowledge of Christ. And also, why rip them off of being less selfish? We live in a selfish society. So by us saying, well, we don't want, you to, be, we don't want to be a burden on you, is like us saying, go be selfish. Go be selfish. And three, it continues that downward spiral, spiral of moral depravity that we're seeing in our day. It continues it. You are not the solution. You are part of the problem then. If you were to commit that or counsel anybody else to commit that or to let it happen without a fight. 
If I ever hear that somebody in this building is going to be euthanized, I will fight. I will fight. And I will preach and I will pray. And I'll probably get fired. But it is worth it. No, I will. Corporate. <laughs> it's a corporate building. But I tell you what, I'll be here and I'll let them know this is not okay. And it is murder. I want to read you a few verses. Um, because God doing this also undermines God's sovereignty and rule over you. Job 14.5 says, Since his days are determined, the number of his month is with, months is with you. You have appointed his limits so that he cannot pass. Basically saying, God's appointed our days. He's appointed how long we're going to live. But then by suicide, we take that into our own hands. We deny God his sovereign will, right? And we take it unto ourselves. We're denying his sovereignty. Psalm 139.16, Your eyes saw my substance being yet unformed, so before we were even born, and in your book they were all written, the days fashioned for me, when yet as there were none of them. God has appointed your days. He's sovereign. Give yourself to him. Let your hope be in him, not in anything else, not in stopping suffering or anything like that. Romans 8, 6, for to be carnally minded is death. To be carnally, fleshly, focused only on this body is death. But to be spiritually minded is life and peace. You will have peace with God when you walk with him and you obey him. You let his love just shower over you, his grace. You will actually have peace. I have a bunch more written, but I'm just going to Read you one more verse, one more small passage. This is from Hebrews 12, 1 through 2, and this is about life. It's like the summation of the life of the believer, the life of the believer in Jesus Christ. Hebrews 12, 1 through 2, and this is in light of, it's called the Hall of Faith. Hebrews chapter 11, it tells of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and um, Sarah and Rebecca and all these people of faith, right, who did things and acts and works of faith. And even those who were persecuted, who wandered around in sheepskins and goatskins, were afflicted and abused. Right? It's in light of great men and women who have placed their faith in God, in Jesus Christ. And so it says this, Therefore we also, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, so that the picture is this, we're running a race, Right? We're running a race in a big coliseum or something like that, amphitheater, whatever, and we're surrounded by all these witnesses, all these fans cheering us on. You know, you have Abraham and Moses and, you know, the Apostle Paul and all these guys who, who suffered for the Lord and continued on in faith. We're surrounded by their witnesses and also those people who have gone before us. The people who are believers, and they're telling you to run to Christ, run to Christ, run for Christ. Don't look back. Just keep running towards him. It says, therefore, we also, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us lay aside every weight and the sin which so easily ensnares us, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us. Your life is a race. You're approaching the finish line. None of us knows really where that finish line is. Right? But it says, looking unto Jesus. We don't look at the finish line. We don't look at that day we're going to die. We look unto Jesus. The author and finisher of our faith, for the joy that was set before him, endured the cross, despising the shame, and is sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. For consider him who endured such hostility from sinners against himself, lest you become weary and discouraged in your souls, you have not yet resisted to bloodshed, striving against sin. So one of these days, you may be in a hospital, you may be with your family, you may be in pain, and the question may arise, do you want us to help you go? What are you going to say? What are you going to say? Are you going to say, yes, just put me out of my misery? 
Are you going to say, no, I'm looking to Jesus, the author and finisher of my faith, who for the joy that was set before him, he endured the cross. I'm going to endure this. He endured a cross. A cross, nails through his hands, lashes of the whip on his back, his bones and its joints dislocated, naked in front of the eyes of the whole world. Let's run with endurance like him. And your day's not over until God takes you. Isn't there great peace in that? When God takes me, then my time's over here, and I'll be with him. And I'll be with him. Don't let anybody talk you into it. Don't let anybody talk you into it. And be a light here, even in death. And a lot of us think, well, what can we do? I feel so useless. Number one, you can pray. Have conversations with the people around here. Show them the light of Christ. Show them what is good, what is right, what is noble. And pray, 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 pray. Right? Pray for people. You're interceding on their behalf with an almighty, loving God. That is glorious. It's awesome that we can go to God and bring people before him and entrust them to him. Um, I wanted to just ask, are there any questions about this at all? Anything that's been kind of rattling around in your mind as we're talking about this? There's no stupid question. I was thinking of a story. Is it long? You want the mic? Okay, okay. I'll repeat it if I can. Okay. Anyway, this doctor who was delivering his child went to bring him to birth and found that the child was without legs. Mm -hmm. True story. The doctor, knowing the condition of the woman and her state of mind, thought she would be better off without that child. So he called for the power, I guess this is something that happens in hospital. Mm -hmm. Called for the power and everything. He wasn't going to deliver the child. He's going to let the child terminate right here. And something made him deliver. He said, years and years later, he went to a concert. And the pianist played the most beautiful music he had ever heard. And it turns out it was that child. Really? Yeah. Okay, so there's a story, I don't know if, how many of you heard that, of a doctor who's delivering a baby. The baby was going to be born with no legs whatsoever. And his first thought was to call, every, call everybody in, throw in the towel, that this lady would be better off without that child. And so something in him made him decide to, to go ahead and deliver the child to spare its life. And uh, years later, he goes to this, this concert, and this child's, well... Somebody's playing this most beautiful music, and he finds out it's this child with no legs. You know, but this person had a, a purpose. Also, that is another thing that comes up a lot. Well, I wonder if a child's going to have birth defects. Shouldn't we euthanize that child? I'd say, no, what makes their life any less valuable than ours? Nothing. It's God's. God can work through that. There's, a, there's one guy um, I know of. I think he's Australian. He was born with no arms, no legs, no limbs at all. Okay, he's had many surgeries. They got him kind of like a little, kind of more like a flipper than anything that he can kind of use. And uh, he's got a flipper on his on his legs that he can kind of use. The guy can jump like this high. He's, I think he's close to my age now. He's probably in his 30s or something. He goes around evangelizing people in huge um, events like at Mile High Stadium and stuff, thousands of people will come and hear this guy preach the gospel. He tells them. And his God's strength is made perfect in weakness. God's strength is made perfect in weakness. 
And so that's, a, that's an awesome thing to know that God can use some, somebody like that. Their life is no less valuable than ours. Right? Any other questions or comments? All right, let me pray for you. Father, you're so good. I thank you for everybody who's here. I pray that it would be a light. Lord, that we would continue running the race that you've set before us. Lord, and we would look to you, the author and finisher of our, of our faith. Lord, that we would um, love you and trust you with our whole hearts. And when we don't, Lord, that we would repent, we would recognize it. And we would, again, place our faith in you. You've saved us. You died for us. How much can we trust you? We can trust you with everything. So, Lord, please help. I pray that you'd help our country. I pray that you'd revive it. It's so ripe for judgment right now by you. Think of what Billy Graham said. If, if God doesn't destroy America, then he owes Sodom and Gomorrah an apology. So please, turn us from the error of our ways. Turn us from our sin and turn us to you. As a people, as a nation, let's be a light. In your name, Jesus. Amen. All right. Now we're going to do the song and dance. No, I'm just kidding. I don't do that stuff. But I love you guys. And if you ever have any questions, feel free to ask me, okay? All right? I'll ask you if I have questions. So don't be afraid to ask me.